During this, um, this week, we're going to talk a little bit about theology in relationship to counseling. Since we have a theological crowd around, and we have a lot of people who are knee-deep in theology right here in the seminary, I think that this is most appropriate for us to think in this vein. But as we begin, I want to ask this question about you who are pastoring churches or those who are thinking of pastoring churches and now looking very hard at the church or churches they have been attending recently. How many of you have lined up a Jehovah's Witness to speak in your pulpit uh, this coming year? Nobody, presumably. How many uh, persons have you sent down the street to the local Mormon church for help on theological questions that they haven't got uh, quite, quite the right answer to? Anybody referred anyone lately to a Mormon elder? Nobody here raising his hand. Well, those are pretty stupid questions you say to ask at Grace Theological Seminary. Perhaps so. How many of you, uh, however, have a psychiatrist or psychologist lined up to speak to your young married couples? Or have referred someone to a psychiatrist or psychologist over the last year? I don't see much difference. That's the point that I'd like to make in this lecture. Let's talk about that point. Let's talk about that analogy. There are three eminent theologians I'd like to discuss with you for just a little while. Sigmund Freud, Carl Rogers, and B.F. Skinner. You snicker about calling them theologians, I gather. You snicker over the idea that anyone would think that these men are interested in theology. Well, let's consider that a little more closely. Probably... If you told B.F. Skinner he was a theologian, he'd just grin and walk the other way. Carl Rogers might uh, grin and say, you think I'm a theologian? (laughs) Freud, if you could resurrect him, would have a different opinion because he knows better now. The fact of the matter is that these men are, or were, theologians of great eminence in our day. Now, they didn't go under that title. Nor am I saying that their theology is or was good theology, you understand. But theologians, they are 
nonetheless. And until Bible-believing preachers of the word of the living God come to see that that is what they are, we will continue to be influenced by their theology and our people will continue to be led astray by their theology and we will continue to see the impact of their theologies in our churches and we will be thereby weakened or destroyed as individuals often are by their theologies. Some have crept in unawares, Jude says. And that is what has happened, precisely what has happened in our day. Theology is being taught down at the local psychiatrist or psychologist's office to your members every time you refer them. You say that's a, a rather strong charge you've made. That's a rather peculiar and strange kind of analogy that you are drawing. Can you substantiate what you're saying, or are you just throwing stones? I should like to spend a little while in this introductory and opening lecture before we get into some good theology and counseling for the rest of the week, looking at what is happening in biblical counseling today or counseling in biblical churches today, which is not always biblical counseling, just to see where we are and to echo a strong word of warning about the future. Let's take those three eminent theologians. <clears throat> Sigmund Freud said, there are three great shocks that our society has had. The first shock was the Copernican Revolution. Western society felt that great shock when she realized for the first time that the earth was not the center of the universe. That just rocked and changed man's thinking. Then he said, there came the second shock, the Darwinian revolution, when man came to realize that he was no special creation of God, but that he was simply another animal like the rest. That was a terrible blow to Western civilization. And then modestly Freud said, the third shock was psychoanalysis. This was to teach man that he was not even, as Freud put it, the master in his own house. What did he mean when he said that man is not the master in his own house. Freud believed that man was an irrational creature. Quite contrary to all that the scriptures teach about the moral and rational nature of man and his responsible nature before God, 
Freud taught that man was a totally irresponsible and irrational creature. He once put it this way. He said, man is like an iceberg. And you know that most of the iceberg is beneath the surface of the water. Just a little peak protrudes on the top of the waters. But the great bulk, the great mass of the iceberg is beneath, out of sight. He said that's how man is. Most of man's abilities, his thinking, his values, his motivation, most of man is beneath the surface, unconscious. And that which motivates man, that which makes him do what he does, think what he thinks, be what he is, is all beneath the surface. It's all in the unconscious. We don't do what we do because we really make decisions that are rational, moral decisions to do those things. The little iceberg peak, which is rational man and conscious man, is simply the rationalizing side of man. Man rationalizes for himself and for others the basically irrational actions and thoughts that he has, which actually come from that great mass beneath the surface of the water. And into that mass of man's nature beneath the surface has been placed a great deal over the years from childhood on up. And it's what others have done to him, how they've taught him, treated him, and so on. What grandma did, his teachers did, his Sunday school teacher, what he was taught in church, all the socialization process that took place. This is what really motivates man. Not his conscious thoughts, I will do X or Y because I want to please God or whatever. But man does it because of the way that he has been socialized. There isn't anybody here this morning who has made a decision for Jesus Christ, that would mean. Everybody here who thinks that he has trusted in Christ as his Savior and become a believer through a moral, rational choice has deceived himself. You have made the decisions you've made that have brought you to this place and brought you here and are making you study in this institution simply because of the background that you have the input from other people who have programmed you this way. You've been socialized into Grace Seminary or wherever. Now, my friends, I don't know what you think. You may just think that's totally unimportant. It doesn't really matter what the man believes or what he taught or what he thinks about man. After all, Maybe some mechanical way that he deals with people will be able to help them if they're in trouble. We don't ask questions of the local physician. At least too often we don't ask questions uh, as to whether he uh, believes this or that or disbelieves this or that. We go down there and we let him prescribe a certain kind of pill or regimen and we follow it and we get healed. So we do with our psychoanalyst or our psychiatrist or our psychotherapist or our counselor or whoever he may be. He's just a mechanic working on us in some way. What his beliefs are, 
are totally unimportant if he can put the spark plug in and remove the old one and get the wires on right and not get the wire harness all mixed up. That's the only thing that really counts. If that's the way you think, you don't know what's going on. You're just simply not aware of what's happening in this field. Because this field is not a field like automobile mechanics or even like medicine in some areas. Of course, it becomes very important what the physician believes when the question of abortion arises. But this is entirely different than the automobile mechanic. This is a matter of whether your counselee that you have referred to that psychotherapist is going to be taught Freudian theology about man or not. And what I have been describing for you is theology. It is a doctrine of man, an anthropology. It is a view of man which is totally out of accord with the Bible, totally in contradiction to what the scriptures teach, and therefore will lead people totally away from the things of God if they accept it. And it is through teaching, not through mechanical screwing in or out of spark plugs, but through teaching, through thought, through convincing people that they ought to think a certain way and therefore live or behave or take action in a certain way that psychotherapy is carried on, quite contrary to the basic thesis that I've just described of psychotherapy in psychoanalysis. Because it's really all the subconscious stuff that motivates you anyway. I don't know why you want to change the fellow's thinking on the surface. You've just rationalized something else. But you see, this is theology. Either man is moral and responsible and has a certain rationality about him even after the fall, or he is not a moral creature. He does not make moral decisions, and he does not stand before God as a person who will be judged on the basis of those decisions that he has made. You can't have it both ways. And depending on which way you have it, it will make all the difference in the world as to how you think, your young people think, your young marriage think, or that counselee that you've referred to a Freudian psychotherapist thinks. And don't think Freud is out the window yet. I recently saw some studies that said that still Freudian thought still is the predominant thought in America. Not all of it, not the whole bag, but the basic underlying framework at least. Let's take that second now living theologian, Carl Rogers. Now, Carl Rogers would probably grin at us, as I say, and repeat back to us what we think, and that would be about it. He wouldn't think of himself, however, as a theologian. Freud might have, even in his lifetime. Freud had a 
quite a different view of things than many of us realize. For a man who believed that every action was symbolic and that even our slips of tongue were symbolic, for a man who thought that way, what do you make of the fact that he hung out his shingle and went into practice on Easter Sunday? I think that tells us something. I think it tells us exactly what we find in Freud's writings, that he was out to demolish the Christian faith, which he hated. He was out to set up a rival theology to Christianity. But quite apart from judging his motives or goals, look at what it does, and you will see that his theology completely contradicts everything that the scriptures themselves teach. Man is not responsible is the fundamental premise or presupposition of Freudian thought. Carl Rogers, however, has a different presupposition. Carl Rogers says, the closer I get to a person, the closer I get to the core of a man's being, the more I realize down inside that man at the very core and essence of his being, man is essentially good. That's what Rogers teaches. That's what he believes. Everything is built on that one presupposition. Everything grows out of that. The methodology and all the rest come from it. Why is it that Rogers repeats back to people, uses the mirror, reflects back to people? Why is it that he bounce, is a wall off of which people bounce their ideas? Because he believes that man is essentially good at the very core, that's his word, of his being. If man is good, then man will make the right decisions. Man comes prepackaged with all the answers to all of his basic needs right inside of himself. And the only reason that we have any problems today in this world in which we live, the only reason that we go astray, the only reason that people get into trouble is because they start depending on something external to themselves like a Bible or a church or a preacher or a God or something else outside of themselves. When what they ought really to do is to look within and find within the answers that are within. Man's problem is not that somebody has wrongly socialized him as Freud taught, but man's problem is he has not lived up to his own potential. And so phase two of Rogers is the human potential movement, which we hear a great deal about today. Potential. We've got it all inside. So, you reflect back to a person what he himself is saying, what he himself is thinking, so that he may see more clearly his own idea. And the whole non-judgmental atmosphere is designed for one purpose and one alone. That is to make it easy for the person to say, and express what he himself thinks about any given subject. In 
fact, Roger said there's only one condition necessary for counseling. It's not even non-directive repetition or reflective methodology. That's good, and that may be used, but that's really a supplementary thing, and it may help speed things up. But you can even do without that. The one thing that's necessary, said Rogers, is an accepting person in the presence of the counseling. A non-judgmental, accepting person. And of course you accept everything that the counselee comes up with because he's good. And his ideas are good. And his thoughts are basically good. If we can only get him to see what he himself down deep inside thinks instead of repeating what others have told. Now there, I say to you, is theology. I don't know how you see it, but we're dealing simply with the doctrine of man today. We could talk about the doctrine of God. We could talk about the doctrine of soteriology or salvation. We could talk about various other doctrines in relationship to each of these men, and we could set up a whole system for each one if we cared to do so. It could be readily done. But I'm just looking at one area, the doctrine of man, which is so deeply affected and so clearly evident in these men, but so deeply affected uh, by their thought. And so what is Rogers' view of man, his anthropology, his teaching about man? According to Rogerian theology, and we must think of it as theology, man is good. And of course, he must not be restrained, he must not be Regimented, he must not even be informed or modified by anything from the outside. Obviously, he needs no new birth. Obviously, he needs no special revelation. Obviously, he needs no church. Obviously, he needs no preaching. All those things are heresy to Rogerian theology. Man has it in himself. That's the core of the whole business. And the methodology, everything else is built consistently on that theology, that doctrine of man. Do I need to say to Grace Seminary students and those that this seminary would attract to meetings like this that such theology is totally unsound? Do I need to repeat what Ephesians 2 tells us that we are dead in trespasses and sins and by nature children of wrath? Do I need to repeat the psalmist's words who tells us that we are born, shapen in iniquity, conceived in sin? Do I need to repeat the fact that man needs a new birth, regeneration by the Spirit of the living God, a radical transformation from outside himself, and that he needs a revelation and a God and the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and regular teaching of the ministry of the Word. My friends, no theology preached by the Moonies could be more contrary to our Christian theology than that. And yet perhaps no System, no person has been more widely accepted 
in Bible-believing circles. I'm not talking about the liberals today. In Bible-believing circles than the Rogerian system. And it all has happened because we have not examined the theology of this man for what it is. Take B.F. Skinner. Skinner might get a little angry if you pressed him calling him a theologian. I don't know, but I would suspect he might. He's had some pretty nasty things to say about theology. He's talked about the ghost language and the spook, spooky language that theologians use, talking about the ghost within a man, the spirit within a man. And he's laughed at that and jeered at that. He's turned against the Christian faith in every way that he can, saying that we have to wash, even wash such vocabulary out of our everyday thought and speech. We can't even talk about mind, let alone talk about the spirit of a man. All that mentalistic language, as he calls it, is taboo. We've got to get down to the one simple plain fact, says Skitter, that man is an animal and nothing more than an animal, perhaps the most complex animal, we'll grant you that, but an animal. And he is in trouble because he has thought of himself as something else than an animal. He has thought that he had this transcendent character, that he had some kind of a, a, a soul or an other life or a life to come or some kind of a spiritual side to him. And instead of thinking scientifically about himself, as man should have, he has thought scientifically about all of the creation and all the universe, and he's progressed in all of those areas. We even send uh, spacecraft out into space, and men walk on the moon, and all of that progress that we see in medicine and elsewhere, all of that has taken place because... Man has been scientific about his universe, but he fails to be scientific about himself. He fails to recognize that all there is is behavior. All there is inside the skin and outside the skin is animal behavior, nothing more, nothing less. And when he comes to see that and he reckons with that fact and he quantifies man's behavior, and he deals with man on a quantifiable basis only. Then, and then alone, will man begin to make progress and solve his problems, including war, heartache, sorrow, and the rest of it. So let's get rid of all this theological stuff that we have gathered over the years as the ball has been rolling downhill. Scrape off all that moss and get back to the scientific truth about man. That he's an animal, trainable, has been trained, wrongly trained by his environmental contingencies and the reward schedules that have been set up. And if we set up the right contingencies and we set up the right reward and aversive control, we won't speak of punishment, schedules then we can get man to run any maze that he is capable of, physi physiologically capable of running. We can train him like any other animal, because that's all man really is. Do you believe 
that you can accept this theology which is being taught in educational circles, which is being taught in psychological circles, which is being taught in legal circles, and now which is being taught in all sorts of Christian, Bible-believing circles, Christian colleges, Christian universities, Christian uh, seminaries. All across the land, this kind of thing is being taught. Can you accept that theology that underlies this system? That man is only an animal like any other animal? I don't believe that. When I read my Bible, I read that God created man in his image and in his likeness. That man is a special creature. That while he shares certain characteristics with the animals, he may walk on the crust of this earth, eat food, breathe air, excrete wastes. He may have certain characteristics in common with some animals, yet he is unique, a special, very special creation of God in whom God breathed, into whom God breathed his own breath. And he has become a living being, a living creature of a special kind who has a moral capability and a moral responsibility before God. And he is a man that is capable of worship, a man that is capable of service of the living God, a man who is capable of living with that God for all eternity in praise and honor and glory in an intelligent and decisive way in which animals are not. Do you believe that man is only another animal? Is that something your anthropological theology will allow you to accept? My friends, this is the theology of three men today. That these theologies that are being propagated widely. There are hundreds of others. I mean literally hundreds of other systems that are being taught today. 230 about six years ago were isolated by the Saturday Review of Literature in this country alone. On all sides. And from within, we are being inundated with theology. Theology that is contrary to everything taught in the seminary, everything believed by Bible-believing pastors, everything that we hold dear and precious in our faith. We are told that men's problems can be solved apart from the Scriptures and apart from the Holy Spirit. You believe that love, joy, peace, and all the fruit of the Spirit, which are said to be the fruit or the result of the work of the Spirit of God, do you believe that those kinds of things can be achieved apart from the Spirit and His Word? What kind of theology is it that teaches us that we're okay if we say so? My friends... I plead with you today. I urge you today. I earnestly seek to persuade you with all the power that I have today not to let yourself be deceived and blinded by the facts of the case that have been so carefully covered up by the terminology of our time.
Don't be deceived about the facts of the case by this terminology. We are told that these are emotional problems. We are told that these are psychological difficulties. We are told that these are some sort of third area problems that need a third area effort. These are not physiological difficulties, and we're not talking about those today. There are genuinely physiological difficulties, brain tumors, toxic problems, chemical uh, uh, difficulties that people have that affect behavior. Those things belong to a genuine physician, and I work closely with physicians or on physiological issues, truly organic issues. But there's the organic side, and here is the theologian's work. And in the middle, we are told, there is a third area, the area of the psychological. I don't read anything about the area of the psychological in my Bible. I don't believe there is a third area. I don't believe that there is a non-moral area that is non-physiological in between the physiological and the moral area by which man operates because my Bible doesn't say a word about it. And if there were such a wide area in man, a third area in between these two that existed, where morality was not the issue, where serving God was not the issue, where behavior could go on in a purely neutral way, as we are told, and our Bible would have to tell us because that's a very important piece of our anthropology. And I don't read anything in Hodge or Burkhoff or anywhere else about this as they have studied the scriptures and tried to systematize biblical anthropology. And I don't think you'll read anything anywhere in any theological book of any merit or in the scriptures themselves about this third area. Why do we allow people to talk about it? because we have been brainwashed. When people talk about emotional growth and emotional immaturity and emotional problems, what are they saying? We don't have any problems with our emotions. In those difficulties, the person's feeling absolutely lousy. He wishes he did have an emotional problem. His emotions are working great. That's why he's depressed. That's why he's angry. That's why he's upset. That's why he's miserable in whatever way he is. He hasn't got an emotional problem. That is a euphemistic use of language. A euphemism is simply a nice way of saying a bad thing. You know, there used to be the day in which uh, you'd get on an airplane and here was this little bag in the pocket in front of you and it said for vomiting. And more people did because it said that than for any other reason. <laughs> then they caught on to that and they changed that and they said for motion, for air sickness. That didn't, that was a little better, but not much better. Then they changed that and they said for motion discomfort. Oh, that word discomfort. I, I used to have a dentist. I go to this dentist and he's got his drill down in my tooth and it's touching my little toe. And he's saying, are you having some discomfort? I used to say to him, Gene, it's pain, pure pain, not discomfort. That's a euphemism. Well, eventually they changed the check bag until... <laughs> the chuck bag, yeah, that's another euphemism. 
That's another euphemism. Eventually, they changed the chuck bag to simply a blank side or tic-tac-toe marks on the side of it with no wording at all. But we live in a euphemistic age, in a euphemistic society, and this whole business about emotional problems. There is no such thing. When that person's having that so-called emotional problem, what he's having is a problem in living, a problem with his neighbor and a problem with God or a problem with both. These are problems that are not outside of the territory of the theologian and of the Christian minister. These are behavioral problems, spiritual problems. There's no third neutral area where we have emotional problems that belong to some third caste, self-designated uh, caste of persons, a secular priest called a psychiatrist. My friends, I'm asking you to think, to think about what you hear, to think about what you read, to think about the propaganda abroad today in the world, to think about what's happening to your people who go down to the mental health clinic, to think about the Christian books or the books that are written by Christians that are filled with this kind of psychological background and then somebody eclectically tries to bring that together with our Christian faith. Think what's going on. Can you put together the doctrines of the Moonies or the doctrines of the Jehovah's Witnesses or the doctrines of the Latter-day Saints with the Christian faith? Can you find a way of eliding, therefore, Freudian theology or Rogerian theology or Skinnerian theology with the Christian faith? Can you take any system that says we can do it without the Bible and the Spirit of God and elide that with the Christian faith? Eclecticism is the problem in our day. That's where the line is drawn today between Christians and Christians. I'm not denying the Christianity of those who are eclectics. That's not the issue. But I am questioning their thinking. And I'm questioning particularly their theological thinking. Because they don't think theologically. That's the whole problem. They don't think theologically. 99 and 44%, 100% of the books and the teaching that is going on in Christian circles, and I'm only talking about Bible-believing Christian circles today in this whole area of the family, of problems that people are having, is coming from men who are not trained in theology. It's coming from men who have PhDs in psychology or psychiatry or something of that sort and who have a Sunday school degree or perhaps a little better in theology. And when you put those two kinds of things together, you know what you get? A mess, theological. That's what you get. You don't get real theological thought. And what are the great slogans and the great cries that we hear from such people? All truth is God's truth. Oh, isn't that a good one? Who would deny that truism? Of course we all believe. I believe that all truth is God's truth. That's not the issue. The issue is what is God's truth and what is truth. 
And how are we going to determine what truth is? We can't just say that a thing is truth and therefore we must accept part of it. Do we say that when we come to the Moonies and the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons? Oh, all truth is God's truth, so bring them in. Let them speak in our pulpits and we'll get the best we can out of what they have to say. They must have some something to say that we can learn from. That's the way we hear people talking about Freudian theology, Rogerian theology. They just don't call it theology. We know that the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons, and we know that the Moonies are heretics. We have been brainwashed into thinking that the psychological teachings that we are infested with in our Bible-believing churches are not. It's time we awakened to what's going on. It's time we became aware of the fact that theology is being taught, being taught to your people in your churches, and from every Christian bookstore, we are finding theology of the most heretical sort about man and God and the universe being taught under the guise of eclectic Christianity. I urge you to go back and clean out the bookstores where you can. To clean out the programs that are involved in it. And never get yourself tied into it in the days to come. Let me read in conclusion this passage. Timothy, guard that which was entrusted to you. That's the gospel and all that flows from it. Turning away from the irreligious chatter or empty sounding things and contradictions of what is falsely labeled knowledge. Every time you'll be told this is truth, this is knowledge that you have to have, something in addition to what the scriptures teach, which some claim to have, but by taking poor aim have missed the target of the faith. Don't you miss it. You know what you're shooting at. Stay with the book. Stay with the scriptures. Stay with the inerrant and living word of God who alone can transform men's lives and meet their problems day by day. And you will not miss that target and make shipwreck of your faith as so many have, thus weakening the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to talk a little bit about the positive side of things from here on in. This is the only negative one today. But I thought on a snowy day we might as well have it all. 